I fall in the camp of augmenting, adding, building a road from where we are today and working incredibly hard to collaborate with the existing incumbents who are willing and open to being more inclusive and leveraging what is what is now possible versus insisting on what was once the only way of doing things. Welcome to Smarter Markets, a weekly podcast featuring the icons and entrepreneurs of technology, commodities and finance, ranting on the inadequacies of our systems and riffing on ideas for how to solve them. Together, we examine the questions, are we facing a crisis of information or a crisis of trust? And will building smarter markets be the antidote? This episode is brought to you in part by Base Carbon. It's time to get serious on carbon. Learn more at basecarbon.com. Welcome back to Demystifying the Carbon Markets on Smarter Markets. I'm Dave Greeley, Chief Economist at Abex Technologies. Our guest today is Mariam Ayadi, a co-founder of the Water Blockchain Protocol. We'll be discussing the role of blockchain and decentralized finance in supporting transparency, liquidity, and choice in the carbon markets. Hello, Miriam. Welcome back to Smarter Markets. Hi, David. It's a pleasure to be with you. Well, I'm really glad to have you here today to discuss the role of blockchain and the tools of decentralized finance in the carbon markets. Now, with these tools, there's the specifics of the technology, and then there's everything that the technology makes possible. Yeah. I'd like to start our discussion with the second part first, if that's okay with you, because, you know, this technology, it allows for new market structures, which are less centralized and more inclusive. And so I was hoping you could start us off today by sharing your vision for the role of blockchain and decentralized finance. Absolutely. Look, I'm an old school TradFi and commodities girl in my first iteration. And so when I come at all of this from a lens of building on what we already have in the commodities and the voluntary carbon markets and augmenting those with what decentralized finance technology and the governance mechanisms inherent in it really enable and create for us. And so I see it as a significant opportunity. I see it as additive. I see it as a bolt-on and certainly not something that I believe will replace our established ways of doing things today. And today is, you know, big, bold, underlined. Ultimately, what blockchain does and distributed ledger tech does at its heart is it gives us the option to first augment, eventually reduce, and over time eliminate the need for trusted intermediaries. And in the first iteration of this, it really allows us to remove redundant or unnecessary rent takers in the middle who are governing what we believe truth is, who are governing what we believe good is, who are governing how finances should be spent, and who are governing how we should access things like capital for the carbon markets. When I say governing, I don't mean governments. I simply mean the international and multinational bodies we've created often for profit to sit between resources and their consumers, buyers and financiers because we didn't have the technology in the past. So someone 
something, an entity, a committee, a group had to be the aggregator of trust and had to be the safe house that sits in the middle of us and what we consume. That's increasingly less and less necessary because technology and smart contracts can do that without bringing in the complications of humanity, human error, and you know some human judgment. That's at its very sort of macro lens. But if you sort of dig into this a bit more, what we get to with something like the voluntary carbon market is the ability to create an alternative where things like integrity, where things like a good carbon credit, where things like all the other attributes that are associated with the VCM and a unit of carbon, whether it's the societal, the governance, the, the other in- environmental attributes, all of that can be self-defined, whether self is an individual at a retail level who is looking to participate in this market and buy something, or whether self is an organization or an entity or a government or a country. But to get to self-defined versions of integrity and good, to be able to allow the transfer of capital seamlessly so that every buyer, every financier, every user, every market participant can be treated equally, regardless of the scale of their organization or the reach of the organization they represent, sounds pretty interesting and exciting and inviting to me. And I think it simply enhances the market. Yeah, and I'd love to dig into that a little bit more with you, because as you said, you developed your career in in the traditional markets. I imagine you still see a role for many of the aspects of what conventionally market intermediaries and other exchanges did, but you see a difference in terms of the replacement of, sounds like almost like a gatekeeping function. And so your vision, I imagine, differs from those who might see some of their role in the markets being displaced or disrupted by these changes. Could you share a little bit about some of the the roles that you do see for some of the existing market intermediaries and exchanges? Absolutely. I see this, you know, if I were to to be very simplistic, just, just for the sake of conversation, if one's building a new path, a new bridge, a new highway, you have to start where the existing roads are and to create a path to something that perhaps looks different, but is building on, on that archery of transport and mobility already. I see the financial markets, the commodity markets, doing a similar thing when it comes to DeFi, blockchain, and ultimately cryptography. It isn't going to be, in my opinion, scalable or credible to ignore traditional participants. It's not going to be scalable or credible to assume that you know, a smart contract can replace all of human judgment all of the committees, all of the integrity work that's being done, or any of the regulators. But it is credible to believe that that technology can link in to those systems, start to create an alternative and augmented path where there is greater inclusion, there is greater participation from all, 
and there is greater access to capital resources and definitions of good, the self-sovereign definition of good and self-sovereign governance are key to this decentralized world. So it's far less about trying to replace the old. It's much more about trying to, for us, to evolve what exists today so it genuinely leverages the best technology and some of the greatest minds in this technology to be able to create an alternative. And that alternative is simply more transparent, less prone to error, faster, more efficient, but is governed by a lot of the same compliance requirements that we all know need to be in place. And a lot of the same quality requirements that we know need to be in place. Otherwise, you know, you've seen what happens when the crypto market completely ignores things like standards and established ways of working or completely ignores quality assurance or ignores KYC, AML. Those things are perhaps interesting experiments, but they're not real credible ways of getting resources moving through a system. So I, I fall in the camp of augmenting, adding, building a road from where we are today and working incredibly hard to collaborate with the existing incumbents who are willing and open to being more inclusive and leveraging what is what is now possible versus insisting on what was once the only way of doing things. And we certainly are all for uh, trying to find ways to make markets smarter markets. And as we you know, augment what exists and look to move farther down that roadway, um, maybe you could walk us through some of the ways that you see these technologies making existing markets function better. You know, can they make them more liquid? Can they make them more transparent? You know, are, are there some things that, that you see in current markets where these would have uh, a direct application? And also, as you were alluding to, you know, maybe some watch out for's given some of the mistakes that may have been made with using some of these technologies so far. Yeah, I, I want to break that down into a few pieces, if, if I may. The first part is around how might we create greater liquidity and access by leveraging DeFi tech and the solutions in the market today, but bridging that with our with what's necessary in commodities. You know, if you if you look at the voluntary carbon markets today, and let's go straight to that subject, no two projects are exactly the same. And the market doesn't value them as exactly the same. Hence, you know, the whole notion of a voluntary market where these credit units are associated with a specific way of achieving verification under standard methodology. But as time passes, we're seeing the market and buyers value different attributes of each project differently, whether there's female participation in a project, what its impact is on the ecosystem around it. So we, they're not fungible, right? And, and bundling them into baskets or buckets or contracts that by definition have to standardize to be able to have the liquidity and sufficient participation in a centralized exchange, that 
is forcing something that is genuinely non-fungible to become fungible. That, that seems both unnecessary and a wasted opportunity. We're just taking a square peg and trying to shove it down the round hole of, of what we're used to always doing. I wonder if that's good for the market. I'd, I'd argue it's not. In addition, there's a significant amount of retail liquidity that doesn't have access to genuinely participating in what is ultimately a financing scheme to clean up the planet. And how might we create access for retail participants at a global level to exercise reach, governance, and ability to fund what they believe is good? Because that's ultimately the objective of this, not again creating a giant global intermediary who again is taking choice from local organizations and individuals who are co-located with the project, right? I don't know if that makes any sense, but I I think about history and the way we we sort of developed our resource industry and the way resources, access to them, their exploitation came with significant opportunity, but in many ways, you know, I think we all agree, created the climate dilemma. A lot of what happened in that first iteration on resources was creating these centralized bodies, whether it's an international oil company or a giant global bank who's funding it, to intermediate between resource holder and resource buyer to monetize that transaction. And the outcome of that was leaving the the resource-owning countries, societies, governments much poorer, both for opportunity and for wealth, but also leaving them with significant legacy pollution. And as we go about trying to address that dilemma, the climate dilemma, if we do it in exactly the same way we did the last iteration on resources, if we insist on international and and often from the economic north, bodies and financiers and, and wealth, having the opportunity and having the having all of the clout to again intermediate and leave a vast portion of the population stranded from participating, then we're just creating the same cycle all over again. And once that was necessary, and once there was no other alternative, today it is no longer necessary. There are alternatives to allow participation at a very local and global and personal level through the end-to-end of these supply chains, financing, verification, etc., and governance. And so there is a moral and financial societal and climate obligation to do this right. I know I've heard you say in the past that, you know, these technologies help us create common ownership of our common problems. Absolutely. And, you know, a lot of what you say, it reminds me, you know, I'm an economist by training, and it sounds that what you're describing is markets that have much less market power, much more accessibility, kind of the way economists always assume they operated. (laughs) But, you know, now perhaps actually operating that way. 
Well, I mean, it ultimately comes down to creating shorter feedback loops between capital values and governance. And it's increasingly possible and plausible to do that with decentralized technology. I mean, imagine a genuine inclusive governance model for for any of these ecosystems. Imagine a world where every participant, not an executive committee, not you know a selected board, where people aren't forced to delegate their choice, their decision and their values because they don't have access to participation. And we don't have to imagine that, that's real. We just have to enable it and we have to be willing to participate in it. And we're seeing various entities and organizations experiment with that in the blockchain and DLT space already. I mean, and you asked me in your last question, whether there were examples of this that that perhaps had tried valiantly and not done as brilliantly as one had hoped. And and I think, you know, the obvious example is KlimaDAO, which I believe opened the market's eyes to the potential of retail participants playing in the carbon markets, although Klima didn't get all of its quality checks, etc., sorted, and it had, you know, all sorts of credits going in and out of the system. But what they wanted to achieve is digital sequestration of carbon, taking carbon credits off the market, retiring it, and making them disappear. And they did that initially with impressive speed and scale. Now, imagine taking that sort of access and reach, adding to it things like quality and integrity verification for the carbon, adding to it the ability to allow those carbon credits to go on chain, but also then come off chain, you know, once someone wants to either retire them or once someone wants to bundle them with a commodity, but in the interim they exist as an asset class all of their own with various attributes, with various pricing mechanisms, and all run by a DAO, which is a decentralized autonomous organization. That means no individuals calling the shots. There's no committee in the middle deciding what the answer is. It's the whole community voting and everyone having one vote for each token they own. And that level of governance and granular governance is so inclusive. Imagine doing that in Africa for last mile distribution of financing to subsistence farmers. Imagine creating digital identity at that level. I mean, the possibilities are endless and carbon is the easiest place to start because it is already a digital commodity. And I'd love to dig into that part because I feel like it really brings us back, you know, to, to the first part of the discussion, the, the technology itself. Yeah. What is it in particular about the carbon markets that makes these specific technologies such an important part of the solution? Well, first, that it's already a digital asset. In, in most of the work we do with our partners at, at, at Water, we're working to bring a physical asset to a digital form and then tokenize it. Starting with a digital asset is is obviously 
wonderful place to be. The second thing that's incredibly interesting is if you believe carbon credits are not fungible in that they have fundamentally different characteristics depending on the project they come from, whether they're nets or nature-based solutions, whether, you know, what vintage they are when it comes to various methodologies, blah, 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 right? Pick, pick your box. But if we believe they're not fungible, then really nothing captures the ability to have multiple classes of the same asset the same way that blockchain and DLT technology do, and in a you know in a in a tangent that might not be immediately obvious to everyone, you know NFTs are perfect examples of digital assets that are non fungible, and so being able to track and trace them at a project specific level makes the carbon markets much more transparent. It allows me to now exercise choice without waiting for a committee to tell me whether or not I should like where this project comes from, because I'm not looking at a bundle. I'm literally looking at a specific project, a token representing a specific project that I can click on and see everything I need to see. Now, if I want to delegate verification and integrity, I can still do that by all means. But if I choose not to, I can also do that. I can do my own verification. And so being sovereign and having transparent provenance tracing that is really irrefutable is, is the forte of blockchain and decentralized tech. Once you achieve that and you have this token that represents a carbon credit derived from a specific project, then what you can do is make that available to a whole range of participants in a whole range of ways that are incredibly unique to the DeFi market. In a decentralized exchange, one can buy and sell against contracts that are user-generated. So I don't have to wait for the CME to issue a contract for me to be able to put my carbon credits on an exchange. I can generate one. Or I can see any other contract that actually meets the requirements I have and put my carbon credits in that liquidity pool. The market decides, no intermediaries decide what a good contract is. And there can be hundreds of contracts, hundreds of liquidity pools. You know, it's automatic market making, right? Anyone can be a liquidity provider, anyone can be a market maker, and anyone can be an organization, a retail participant, or a group of individuals, as long as they pass the requisite KYC AML requirements of that environment. And everyone who meets that hurdle is participating in the governance and is participating in the economic rent created by that exchange, by that ecosystem, by that trade. It sounds utopian. And you know, sometime in 2016, when I started looking at blockchain and DLT, etc., I was sure it was all just idealists, completely oblivious to what is real in the market. And the more I learn and the more we build and the more I see what's genuinely possible, 
No, these are, it's all about self-sovereignty and leveraging the technology to create an efficient market, which really ultimately is all of our dreams. And it's, you know, you raise such an important point about being able to distinguish, you know, various qualities of, say, for example, a carbon credit or being able to look at projects somebody wants to invest in or credits they want to buy a project from and not having to just say, well, there's one top-down standard and that's the only thing that's bought and sold, but there's going to be a wide variety of projects and credits with various attributes, some related to the carbon, some related to other aspects, whether it's biodiversity or uh, the way they're, they're governed. So, you know, it's interesting because in so many of the conversations, I feel like this is often lost on people that within commodities markets, that's always been more the, the, the rule than the exception that, you know, I, I kind of spent a lot of my career in the oil market and there's not one quality of oil that's sold. There's many qualities. There might be one or two reference benchmark contracts, but people have always traded various qualities of oil in various locations. And as long as there was transparency that buyer and seller could agree on what was being bought and sold, you can trade different qualities at different prices. And a lot, I think, of what we're seeing with some of these you know, newer technologies is they allow us to look at whether it's a project or a good and really understand its provenance, where it came from, where it passed through, what its footprint looks like, uh, whose hands have touched it, and then be able to enter into agreements of, oh, that is worth this price. Maybe that's a little bit more than the reference standard. Maybe it's uh, you know less. But people are able to make that choice because they have the information. And I feel like that gets lost in a lot of conversations. And it's not a convenient truth, right? You have a, you have a huge market emerging. There are powerful incumbents across the supply chain occupying varying positions of influence and control. And information gives, you know, provides control. In this market especially, I think many people have made significant bets over, you know, at least the last decade. And so perhaps it's it's safer to wait for a government or a committee or a body to tell us what the answer is and and exert enough influence in the process that the answer fits our individual perspectives of what we think good is. Whether that addresses the global community, you know, I would say it doesn't. And it really robs us of the opportunity to do this one right. And it robs us of the opportunity to be much more, much more inclusive and much more data-driven on this iteration of the economy because the carbon markets themselves could really benefit from increased liquidity. They could really benefit from the sort of retail participation we saw jump into Klima the moment it was available to them, right? That, that wasn't an anomaly, that was demand waiting latent demand waiting to be allowed to participate meaningfully in something it cares about. I often talk about activism as being, unfortunately, 
misinformed. I have incredible friends who are environmental activists, social activists, and they are protesting things they don't fully fathom. And they are angry at things on their laptop built with aluminum and, and, and metals that come from places they would not, they wouldn't approve of using electricity generated using uh, arguably coal half of the time, et cetera, et cetera. So we have all of this energy in the world that wants to do something, that wants to create impact, but we're not giving it the right information to channel that impact and energy as a force for good, as a constructive force. And I believe the carbon markets being such a global and common dilemma are also a global and common opportunity. And we really should, you know, to the extent that that is possible without compromising integrity of the system, create a system that is much more inclusive, transparent, and allows broader participation. The other magic thing we don't, and I say magic deliberately, we don't really think about often when we talk about these decentralized ecosystems is the amount of innovation and opportunity for innovation that goes into them. An open source in a blockchain ecosystem, an open source protocol is really about a community of millions of innovators and entrepreneurs collaborating together to continuously iterate and improve. We don't see that anywhere in a centralized organization. One of the first things you know I did when I when I left Shell was start to understand things like non-FTE resources who are contributing to our ecosystem. And it was an incredibly novel concept to think about how many people that I will never pay, I will arguably never meet, are waking up every morning and thinking about how they might improve, build on, or innovate on something that we've created. And that concept of an open source, inclusive ecosystem with a massive non-FTE workforce of global entrepreneurs building on it creates the opportunity to iterate, innovate, and really get efficient and sharp in a way that none of our centralized ecosystems have ever achieved. And so if you look at, for example, the non-FTE return per FTE in any organization, and you look at something like Ethereum, who that has you know, I think, I don't know how many employees, not many, you see the whole might of that ecosystem is based on innovators and entrepreneurs who will never work for Vitalik, who've never met him. Imagine if we could do that with any of our centralized exchanges. Imagine if we could do that with any of our councils or committees or governance bodies. We just can't. We don't have that porosity. And so we're not benefiting from the collective genius of an open source economy. And that's the other thing that I think makes carbon incredibly interesting in this space, because it allows all of these young people and old people and everyone from all over the world, men, women, 
etc., who are passionate and have varying degrees of expertise, activism, and energy to this space to really come and innovate and collaborate on solving the problem. And we can't do that in a closed system. It is really impressive and a wonderful resource that, that we all have and can share together. I, I wanted to ask you, though, quickly, for those for whom this might not be obvious, you said that, you know, carbon is, you know, natively a digital asset. And it reminded me a little bit of like Phil Hardwick, one of our guests, you know, would say that, you know, a, a credit is basically a stack of contracts or a stack of legal documents. Um, for those, you know, who, who don't quite connect the dots between why uh, a carbon credit or carbon is natively digital, could you give a quick explanation of how you see that? Absolutely. You're setting a little trap for me now. <laughs> it it should be natively digital. We've created a paper-based trail for it like we do with everything else. It's not necessary that it go through that whole process. Now, if you look at, if you look at like something like Stripe and the way they procure carbon credits and make that available for their consumers on a project by project basis, all fully digitized and linked at a project level, at a source upstream level to the consumption with various pricing points, with a glossary that tells you precisely where these things come from, what they do. That's what I mean by digital. It already exists in digital format and it's not necessary to then reintroduce it into all of our paper-based formats unless we choose to. And of course we do because we need to go through centralized verification processes and we need to document the methodologies and 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 for financing. All of that today is paper-based. So, you know, we create the truckloads of paperwork that we always create. It doesn't need to be that way. And it's nascent enough that we can establish all of these, you know, all of these ways of working in a purely digital fashion. It doesn't exist in quite the same way. Well, it doesn't that that oil exists or copper exists or any real world asset today exists. It's it's a calculation, and that calculation is beautifully delivered with algorithms and smart contracts. And we certainly don't need to be cutting down a lot of trees to make paper to prove that we've planted a lot of trees. That's for sure. It's insane. I mean, if, if one takes seven steps back, literally, and looks at the whole ecosystem and industry we've created around this, it is a little bit mind boggling. And it's, it's wonderful. And, and it's well intended, because we're trying to do a really great thing for the planet. But it can be simplified. And it doesn't have to take the path we've taken for every other thing, which has been to centralize, aggregate, create rent takers in the middle who are then monetizing the climate crisis instead of, you know, creating universal access to the opportunity presented by it. And as part of that opportunity, as we said in the introduction, you are the co-founder of the Water Blockchain Protocol. Can you walk us through what is the water protocol and how are you bringing this technology to help solve real world problems? Of course. Um, the 
Water Protocol is a layer one blockchain ecosystem. What that means is it's comparable in function to things like Ethereum, Polkadot, Algorand, and it's really the base layer Web3 code that decentralized applications, ventures, and businesses are built on. Now where an Ethereum is, is an open source, amazing ecosystem for the transfer of, of data and information, Water aims to leverage similar technologies co-created by some of the giants of blockchain and, and crypto to bring real world assets on chain to make the footprint of everything we consume transparent and visible through provenance, verification, and tracing, all self-sovereign, as in no one tells anybody else what good is. Every organization, every individual chooses for themselves, but has the ability to genuinely choose the footprint and the resources they choose to consume, finance, or participate in. Now that sounds incredibly vast and big and and unattainable, I know, but broken into baby steps, we've built a blockchain protocol. We go live with the DevNet next week with one of the largest blockchain ecosystems on the planet. We've got some amazing partners from conventional um, commodities and we've got some amazing partners from the world of tokenization and we're working with a whole bunch of applications to bring carbon credits and commodities such as aluminum copper uh, metals energy on chain tokenized bought and sold on decentralized exchanges that leverage the latest technology and leverage decentralized finance within compliance guardrails that make sense for the regulated world. And we've had incredible support from the industry. There, there literally hasn't been any door we've knocked on who's told us to go away and it's uninteresting. The worst we get is we'd like to watch and see what happens because it's all incredibly new. So I think the industry, my my old industry, the mining industry, the trading houses, the voluntary carbon market, and the decentralized and DeFi economy are both ready to tackle, you know, the $17 trillion commodities market with this latest technology and bring that efficiency, bring those new markets, bring the differentiated commodities that one can get when we can have genuine ESG differentiation, bring those to market. And that's what we're doing. It's a lot of fun. (laughs) It's the most fun I've ever had. The hardest work, but the most fun. I was amazed that you just kind of slipped in very nonchalantly that you're going live next week. Congratulations. It's 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 a massive accomplishment. Well, thank you very much. It's been a very, very long time. It's our DevNet, so still lots of testing and closed system to make sure everything works as it as it does. But we've just been 
blessed with incredible investors, stakeholders, and partners. So I keep pinching myself and knocking on wood and hoping it all keeps going. But I, I do think, in all seriousness, that we've, we're also at a moment in time where the intersection of technology, decentralized technology, cryptography, sustainability, and commodities is, it's just all happening at once. And you're seeing this amazing, sad, but amazing movement toward self-sovereign decision-making as a consequence of various traumas around the world. The, the, the Ukraine war is creating a self-sovereign movement around self-sanctioning organizations and individuals and countries choosing who they want to do business with and who they don't. I don't think we've ever seen that sort of grassroots movement before. We're seeing it on consumption. Organizations like Apple and Tesla really getting involved in choosing what footprint they will finance in the commodities they purchase to build their products, financiers and shareholders, getting very clear about what they will and they won't tolerate. That intersection with some global regulators really stepping up, regulating the DeFi market has created this moment in time that I think is genuinely the opportunity of our generation. And it's just incredibly humbling to be to be able to tackle a small piece of that. Thanks again to Mary Mayadi, co-founder of Water Blockchain Protocol. We hope you enjoyed the episode. Join us next week for our final episode in this series on demystifying the carbon markets. Our guest will be Sonia Gibbs, a managing director and head of sustainable finance at the Institute of International Finance and a member of the governing board of the Integrity Council for the Voluntary Carbon Market. This episode is brought to you in part by Base Carbon. The trading of carbon credits can help companies and the world meet ambitious goals for reducing greenhouse gas emissions. But how do we judge the quality of these projects? And how can we ensure that our investments are creating real value? At Base Carbon, we're focused on financing and facilitating the transition to net zero through trusted and transparent partners. It's time to focus on what's important. It's time to get serious on carbon. Learn more at basecarbon.com. That concludes this week's episode of Smarter Markets by Abax. For episode transcripts and additional episode information, including research, editorial, and video content, please visit smartermarkets.media. Please help more people discover the podcast by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, or your favorite podcast platform. Smarter Markets is presented for informational and entertainment purposes only. The information presented on Smarter Markets should not be construed as investment advice. Always consult a licensed investment professional before making investment decisions. The views and opinions expressed on Smarter Markets are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect those of the show's hosts or producer. Smarter Markets, its hosts, guests, employees, and producer, Abax Technologies, shall not be held liable for losses resulting from investment decisions based on informational viewpoints presented on Smarter Markets. Thank you for listening, and please join us again next week. 